You're listening to KTOO News Juno. The following is a broadcast of Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event. The seven personal stories you're about to hear were told November 14th, 2017 at Northern Light United Church. The theme for the evening was If Only I'd Listened. Live music by the Wednesday night Old Time Jammers. All right, our first speaker is David Noon. David Noon is an associate professor of history at UAS and the author of, among other things, a recent series of nihilistic Craigslist ads for battered vehicles and seedy furniture. If you have recently purchased a 1997 Honda Civic advertised for $200 as the perfect car for your Viking funeral, that was his. Prior to his arrival in Juneau in 2002, he lived for nine years in Minneapolis. Uh, where he successfully fulfilled every stereotype of a 20-something male graduate student, and where this evening's cautionary tale is set. Please welcome to stage David Newton. I'm going to say something that I don't think has ever been said before, but this is a story about what happens when you don't listen to Charles Bukowski. <laughs> There's a wonderful Bukowski poem, very instructive, called The Shoelace, in which he warns us that it's not the large things that drive a man to the madhouse, but rather the continuing series of small tragedies and the swarm of trivialities that he says can kill uh, quicker than cancer. He says it's not the death of one's love that undoes us, but uh, the shoelace that snaps with no time left. In October-ish, 1998, I was kind of hopelessly flailing my way through a doctoral dissertation, which, for those of you who don't know what that is, it's something you agree to write when you want to cry a lot and <laughs> alienate people who genuinely care about you. I spent most of my time parked on a dirty couch, and I was kind of gazing in a groggy fashion most days surveying the gray borders of the, the middle distance and compressing ass-shaped grooves into the cushions like a glacier bearing down on the plains. From this little bullseye of inertia, I pondered in a, sort of a concentric ring sort of arrangement all of the trivialities and the series of small tragedies that extended outward from, <laughs> from my couch. I, I thought a lot about the dissertation that I was failing to start and might never complete. I thought about the car whose engine I had destroyed by running out of oil. I spent a lot of time thinking about my neighbors who seemed to be engaged in a rotating conspiracy to steal my newspaper several times a week. I thought about the girlfriend who had recently and temporarily swapped me out for a Spanish rugby player named Martine. Uh, so this was sort of my, my life, uh, and I pondered lots of escape hatches from it. I, I thought, for example, about uh, maybe going to law school, which seems like a really weird way to get out of being miserable, sort of like, 
I have malaria, so I'm going to try to cure this with syphilis or something like that. <laughs> I thought about having a bizarre religious conversion that might distract people from the fact that I was failing to, to finish my degree. So in any case, one evening after a particularly productive day of self-loathing followed by a, a rare evening out with, with friends, I returned to my neighborhood and uh, began what was, what was usually a grueling search for a parking spot. And I happened to find one uh, up the street about 50 yards from my building. And it was right on the cusp of another driveway. And as I was preparing to back my way into it, an enterprising competitor in a dark SUV swooped in like a barn owl and stole the spot from me. And this was the shoelace in Bukowski's poem. This was the moment where I temporarily snapped. And this guy became, in an instant, the wellspring of all my troubles. This was the guy who was stealing my newspapers. This was the guy who was getting in the way of my dissertation. This was the guy who introduced my girlfriend to the rugby player. <laughs> so, with a, a kind of blank calm, I backed my car in front of my building, double parked, and soon found myself staring at my open refrigerator surveying its contents, kind of like Butch from Pulp Fiction, looking at the weapons in the pawn shop, trying to decide which one to use to kill Zed. So I had expired yogurt, I had condiments, I had soft vegetables, and I had a carton of eggs, which in this scenario was sort of the samurai sword. So I grabbed the carton of eggs, very deliberately walked right back out to my car, rolled the windows down, and then spent the next five minutes driving up and down the street, pelting this SUV from inside my car. <laughs> like, like the Queen's Guard, if the Queen's Guard were like, you know, entitled 20-something grad students. By the time I finished, it, the car like glistened with yolk and albuminated shell fragments, sort of like the American Egg Board mascot had detonated a suicide fest right in the middle of the street. And with my ammunition spent, I drove a couple hundred yards back up the street, parked the car, and then loped uh, homeward. When I passed the defiled vehicle and got within shouting distance of my front door, uh, I did indeed hear a shout and I heard the infuriated rush of footsteps behind me, masking the panic that was pretty quickly liquefying all my internal organs, I turned around to face my new friend who had dashed up the street to confront me. And I'll spare you the details of, of most of the conversation because for the next five minutes, we parried vivid accusations and on my part, at least, transparently unconvincing denials. <laughs> it was a stalemate. And then he launched into his closing argument, and he said, look, I'm going to be direct with you. I'm talking to you man to man, which I thought was kind of funny, like insulting my masculinity. I was like, dude, you want to come in and see my life? Like, you want me to... <laughs> can, I, can I tell you about the rugby player? This, this is not the right tack to take with me. You can't insult me any, any more than that. But he says, I'm, you know, I'm talking to you man to man. I just want you to know I saw your face. I saw your car. And I was pretty sure he hadn't seen my 
face and hadn't seen you know uh, me personally, but I, I was also pretty sure he was convinced I was I was not on the up and up. So uh, he, he says, I, I saw your face, I saw your car, and I just want you to know ahead of time I'm doing something to your car tonight. Um, <laughs> I'm letting you know man to man that, that that's, that's how this is going to go down. And then he walked away. And I, still having all my teeth and unsoiled, alive, I went back into my apartment and reabsorbed myself into the couch. Uh, the next morning, I woke up and took the most circuitous route possible back to the car. <laughs> I, I, if I had had a fake beard and a monocle, I would have like disguised myself to do it. But I made my way back to the car and I, I found it unharmed with the telltale egg carton sitting right in the passenger side seat. <laughs> and I, I breathed a sigh of relief. I'm not sure if I thought of Bukowski in that moment, but uh, you know, if I had listened to that poem, if I had heard that poem, I might have spared myself at least temporarily the, the indignity of this confrontation. And I would have spared you guys almost 20 years later the spectacle of watching the worst person in the room tell his story first. And, uh, <laughs> thanks. Our next speaker is Marita Weed. Marita is a veteran, and after crossing off a number of accomplishments off her bucket list this year, she feels the need to calm her ego a bit by sharing one of the more interesting predicaments she's put herself in. Please welcome her to the stage. I made it. I'm here. It's been a day. I can tell you that, and I kind of knew when I signed up for this that it was going to be that sort of day. But I'm here, and I made it. Now, call it... Uh, life in general, the age of distraction. You've all had those chances in that moment where you forgot something, something slipped, so mm, you get to wear extra tufts in front of a room full of people while presenting, or you get to flash a little red-pink paper instead of calling a whistle. Now, if you're thinking to yourself, I've never experienced that, well, I'm sorry, I actually pity you, your life must be fairly predicting and boring. My life, however, is not boring, nor is it predictable. So I'm about to share with you a story of how I got myself in quite a situation, all because I ignored that little voice in the back of my head that told me, you have just done something horribly wrong. The day starts out much like today. I taught a full day of teaching, and there is nothing or no one that can be described more exhausted as a teacher, an elementary school teacher, at the end of the day. And like a lot of teachers, I was lucky enough to participate in a class about 4.30 in the afternoon downtown. And it was about 4 o'clock, and I was feeling very anxious to get out of the classroom and finish with the day. And I had probably tried to leave about four or five times already, but it was always, oh, you have that one more thing to get ready in the morning. Oh, you forgot to do this. Oh, wait, that thing there. And I finally had had it with myself. I was frustrated. I was running late. I was like, that's it. I'm grabbing this. I'm putting that away. That's going in the trash, and I'm walking out the door. And I got to the top of the stairs to head down to my car, 
when that voice said, You've just done something horribly wrong. I was, you know, I'm running late at this point. I just need to be downtown. I'm done. I've got my bag. I've got my coat. I've even got my car keys. I can get myself downtown. Get in the car, open up my bag to grab my phone from it and charge it because the battery was running low and I can't find my phone. Not a big deal. This is not the first time that my bag of doom has been so packed I haven't been able to find my phone. I'll just find it when I get into class. Get into class, sit down, still can't find my phone. Not a big deal, it is perhaps sitting on the desk back at the classroom. Not my first rodeo, I've lost my phone before, I know my strategies, it's probably on the desk. Now, ironically, the class that I was attending was about using technology in the classroom. And every so once in a while, they'd be like, and you're going to get an app for that. And so I'd be like, maybe the phone is in my bag. So I only searched my bag in that hour and a half, two hours, about five or six times. No luck. But it's OK. I drive past the school on my way home. I just stop and grab it. Not my first rodeo. Class gets out a little after 7. I hit school a little after 7.30, so it's just me and the custodians in the building, nice and quiet. And I walk in my classroom, and I check my desk. No phone. Open the drawer. No phone. Scan the room. No phone. All right. Strategy number two, not my first rodeo, call it on the landline, which I get to call twice because the phone is on do not disturb, so the first time it goes to voicemail and the second time it rings, don't hear it. Well, I left my bag in the car, so if my phone is indeed in that bag, I'm not going to hear it. So I hit the car because it is past 7.30. I have been away from home for over 12 hours. I just want to get ready for bed and go to sleep. And I'm about halfway home when I realize it's almost 8 o'clock at night. And at 8 o'clock, my phone does something for me. There's an alarm that goes off that tells me you need to do A, B, and C, and then get to bed on a reasonable time so that you can get up bright and early in the morning. And if that alarm is, in fact, going off, you will be able to locate your phone. Bing! So we turn around, and I head back to the school. And I walk up the steps to the classroom, and I open the door, and I listen, and I hear nothing. Well, maybe it's not quite 8, turn around, it's 8.05. That alarm should be going off. Well, maybe the battery's dead. Well, no, because when you were calling the landline, it was going through, so there obviously is some amount of charge there. Well, then I go back through all the strategies, because not my first rodeo on losing my phone, and that voice that had told me, you've just done something horribly wrong, gets a little bit louder. And I start to think to myself, well, what is the last thing that you did before going out? I threw something away. <laughs> no. No, 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 no. That doesn't, that wouldn't have happened. So at this point, the janitor comes into play, and I ask him, Javier, has anyone turned in a red phone to you? And he says in a lovely, thick um, Spanish accent that I'm not going to try and um, replicate, Oh, no, miss, I haven't seen a phone, but maybe it's in the office. Not my first rodeo. 
the phone has been found in the office before. So we go down into the office and the door opens and again, I'm not hearing that alarm going off. It's not in the office. But what is outside the office is the front doors. And what is outside the front doors is the dumpster. So maybe I'm gonna listen to that voice in the back of my head that told me I've just done something horribly wrong. And I open the doors to the front door and I take about five steps when I hear it. The bedtime alarm. The bedtime alarm gets louder as I get closer and closer to the dumpster and continues to get louder as I crank the crank to open the door of the dumpster. As I crawl up the metal steps and peer in to the dumpster and think to myself, wow, this is quite the predicament you've gotten yourself into. As I jump into the dumpster and I locate the bag that my bedtime alarm is coming up from and open the bag. Now I'd just like to share with you, I might have run the Klondike, hiked the Chilkoot, crossed Admiralty Island in a pack raft and on foot, but I have found myself in an elementary school dumpster at eight o'clock at night, all because I didn't listen to a voice in the back of my head telling me, you have just done something horribly wrong. Our next speaker is K.J. Metcalf. K.J. Metcalf and family arrived in Juneau in 1962 for a two-year tour with the Forest Service, and he never looked back. Listening isn't one of his skills, but he is working on it. Please welcome K.J. Ah, good evening. How many folks here have been to Turner Lake? Yeah, quite a few. That is absolutely the most gorgeous place you could ever imagine. This long valley, like a Yosemite Valley, filled with this beautiful green lake, waterfalls cascading off. Well, in 1970, we took a trip there, became one of our favorite places, and we wanted to get away. So it was my three kids, my wife, her sister, myself, and our dog. And we had um, so much stuff, we were gonna stay a week, that uh, we had a friend take us in on a boat, and we had a plane bring my wife and her sister and a lot of the gear and the dog. So we moved everything up. You have to go up a trail about almost a mile, and the lake is probably 150 feet up, and there's a huge waterfall that comes out beautiful stream. It's like Alaska should be. Clean water, gorgeous scenery, wildlife everywhere, and solitude. So the friend that took us in in the boat, and we packed the gear up that we brought, which was most of it, and you have to work the tides to get in there. So we got the gear out, and he came up to the cabin, and we started talking, and then he said, oh my God, the boat. And we ran down and the tide had fallen and the boat was dry or partially dry. It was a big boat, so 
So he spent the night and delighted that he could, but we were looking forward to a vacation by ourselves. So the next morning, he got the high tide and left. Then a Coast Guard helicopter came in, and a plane had crashed somewhere with some goat hunters, and they were looking for the plane. And so they asked us if we had seen it, and we hadn't, and so this huge helicopter left. Said, now maybe it's going to be quiet and what we really wanted. And then the float plane came in, and I had forgotten that I had promised I would take care of a bear down at the other cabin that the uh, Fish and Game and Forest Service decided should be shot because it was just tearing the cabin up and terrorizing the people that came in there. So the district ranger gave me the permit to kill the bear. That's not what I wanted to do, but I said I would do it, and so I have to take that off the list. So they left, and... Um, and it was quiet, and so we, there was a John boat there, and we had a, packed in a 10-horse motor, so we started down towards the cabin, and we got down there, and hit the beach, and it was about three or four miles down there, and I could hear the bear, and my nine-year-old son came up to me, and he said, I can't pee. I said, you can't pee? He said, no, I want to go, really got to go, but I can't. Well, he had had a urinary infection, and we knew he had some scar tissue and had been to a urologist who had done a really bad job of trying to fix it and created more scar tissue. So the urethra had closed. And now we had this silence. The weather started deteriorating, and the fog started coming in, and it started raining. And so I said, well, let's forget the bear. Let's get back to the cabin got back to the cabin and said, have you peed? He said, no, I can't, and it's hurting. So it got dark, and I said, well, I'm going to go down to the tidewater and see if I can find a boat, uh, maybe out in the, in the inlet. Sometimes fishing boats tie up anchor out there. And I took a Coleman lantern down and um, a gun, and... Uh, beginning to think, this sounds really serious. I don't know how this is going to end. So Peggy, wife, stayed back with her son and the other two kids and her sister. And so I got down on the beach, and it was pitch black, and I could see a light. I said, ah, oh, there's a boat. And I couldn't tell how far out it was, and it was foggy and rainy. And so I fired the gun three times, about four series, I used the lantern to make an SOS signal and kept watching and the light didn't change. And I kept watching and watching and it was still in the same place, but no activity. So I headed back up to the cabin and I stopped and I said a prayer and I said, well, God, I hope you're listening. Uh, I don't know how this is going to turn out, but we need some help. I got to the cabin, and Peggy had tried to make a catheter. Uh, nothing would work, and so she said, we have to take the boat down. We have to carry it down. I said, no, we can never do that. She said, oh, yeah, we could do it. And I didn't listen to her at the first, but then I thought about it, and I could imagine where my son might be in a couple of days, and with the weather changing, 
we had no alternative. We had to get out. So we carried that boat down, and it was one of the longest nights I can remember. I made a carrying yoke on the front, and Peggy and her sister were on the back. It was a big boat, and it was heavy, and our son walked in front with a lantern, and we could hear bears crashing around, and once in a while, someone on the back would fall off of the trail. It was a narrow trail, and we finally got down, and I had to go back up and get the motor, and only had about a gallon and a half of gas left, and the oars, and uh, carried that down. Got our son in the boat, got it in the water. We're gonna head towards that light, and the tide was low, and the river was rushing out, so I'd get out, and it would just throw me back up on the beach, and so I grabbed a hold of the boat, I waded out, and I said, if I let go of this boat, my kid's gone, and I'll never see him again. So I got out, and I could feel the current grab us, and I crawled into the boat, got the motor started, and by the current could kind of follow it down, and once in a while, there's some big rocks out there. Big rock would go by. And I headed towards that light, and I headed towards that light, and I headed towards that light. And f even once, I thought I was right next to it, and I throttled down, and then the light was further away. Finally, it became daylight, and what I was heading for was Annex Creek, the power station across the inlet. And the way the mist was, it was totally disoriented me as to how far out that was. I hit the beach. I had mud all over me. I was frantic and went into the power station, and the guy was in there, the operator, and with his headset on, and he looked up, and he was kind of startled, but then... He said, I've been expecting you. I said, what? And he said, I knew someone was going to need help tonight. I've been expecting you. What can we do? Someone was listening, I swear. They got a boat together, <clears throat> launched it, got us into Juneau, had an ambulance waiting. My son got up to the hospital, and uh, Dr. Moss was able to finally get an infant feeding tube as a catheter to take the pressure off my son's bladder. And the next day he was on his way to Seattle. And uh, so I've learned to listen to my wife a whole lot more carefully. <laughs> Believe me. But if you have a chance, you should go to Turner Lake. Our next speaker is Libby Bacalar. Libby is a mother, a lawyer, and an engaged and an enraged citizen. When not working or with her family, she runs her mouth off on one hot mess, Alaska's most ridiculous and tasteless blog. Remember, they write their own. It's not the most tasteless, but it's definitely entertaining. Reading, writing, and neurotic obsessions occupy entirely too much of her time. Libby, if you can join us. So I actually did have a hard time with tonight's theme, and I tried to think of a funny story, and 
you know, about some time I got into trouble and a big Alaskan adventure or hilarity ensued because I didn't heed some warning about not doing something stupid. But uh, despite having done a lot of stupid things in my life, I couldn't really think of anything that quite fit the theme. And then I realized that the answer was right in front of me and it was something that my mom had told me about human relationships. And she's a psychiatrist, she knows a lot about how the mind works. And I wish I'd listened to this advice and internalized it a lot sooner. And it was only four words, and those four words were and are, it's not about you. And this might veer off into sort of TED Talk, motivational speaker, sort of a zone versus a direct plot line situation, so just bear with me. Um, a lot of moments in my life, I think, would have been significantly easier and felt less upsetting if only I'd listened to those four words and really believed them, not just on a rational level, but sort of on a gut level of real emotional insight. Um, I used to be really sensitive. I used to care what people thought a lot more than I do. I used to get offended by things people did and said. I used to be disappointed when uh, people let me down. But over time, I really genuinely stopped feeling that way because I started to listen and I mean, really listen to my mom's advice about the fact that when a person behaves in a way that upsets you, it's not actually about you. And here's what I mean by that. When you meet someone new, it's a mistake to assume, I think, that the other person is operating by the same rules um, you're familiar with. And in fact, you can assume you know almost nothing about who that other person is. And gut reactions to what an unfamiliar person is doing are actually a distraction from experiencing curiosity about why the other person is behaving the way they are. And it's a lost opportunity to learn about someone else. Who have I just met? How does this person think? What are their values? What do they mean by what they said? Um, where do they learn to do things that feel strange or unacceptable to me in the world I'm familiar with? You know, whether it's a new romantic relationship, a friendship, a colleague, or someone you're just engaging with in a superficial way, online or in a transactional setting. Every adult comes to every one of these relationships and interactions as a fully formed person whose behavioral, behavioral repertoire was really scripted um, a long time before you ever met them. You know, they've each learned how to behave um, in relationships through life experiences, unique families and cultures that operate according to their own implicit rules. And tens of thousands of these interactions teach us how the world works. And then you add in all the personal variables through which we filter what we observe and experience, uh, like race, gender, temperament, birth order, and whether to abide by logic or emotion. And we're all so incredibly unique. And my mom, she really taught me how to listen um, by controlling my gut reactions and my own emotions in the service of learning about who someone else is and then using that knowledge to improve uh, my interpersonal relationships and sort of achieve serenity around them. What really it comes down to is the value of being dispassionate. And so when I get angry with someone or someone gets angry at me, I try to notice my feelings and I try to understand how the other person is thinking, what they're feeling, and regardless of someone, whether someone responds to me in a way that feels wrong, or you know, if I could have been more tactful, you know, all of that sort of takes a back seat to my trying to understand the interaction I've just had 
Um, I try to make that person kind of the center of attention rather than focusing on my own performance as a friend or a lawyer or a parent or a spouse or a coworker because it's not about me. It's about cultivating a certain level of dispassionate empathy. Um, and I don't mean cold detachment at all. I mean being dispassionate. It's not incompatible with passion exactly. It's just a skill, I think, like any other skill. And if it's not about you, which are these four words <laughs> that I wish I'd listened to earlier, um, it's about the other person who learned how to behave in the way they're behaving a long time ago. Um, and since it's about the other person, there really isn't anything more powerful or more useful than understanding where someone else is coming from. Um, it's really a tool that I like to use to guide strategic action in every aspect of my life. Try and understand how someone else's mind works, lets you stay more calm and more focused than having knee-jerk emotional reactions to things. Um, and in that calmer state of mind, um, you're able to dispassionately strategize for something more productive. You know, you could say that's manipulative in a way, but really the idea behind this it's not about you advice is to understand someone else and be constructive based on that acquired knowledge. And it improves your tolerance for people's idiosyncrasies, um, makes you a better listener, um, you know, and by contrast, believing in other person's behaviors about you leads you to this mistaken conclusion that you have the power to change them, which you don't. So a person can choose to emulate you or learn from you, but then the person's choosing to change themselves, and you know, that's really where change comes from. You know, people around you are continuously doing things that irritate you, cutting you off in traffic, acting entitled, calling you names, or you know, their kids are being mean to your kids or something. But whether you choose to ignore or respond or engage with each of these provocations, you know, knowing that you're the only person that can change, that the only thing you control can control is your own reaction to these things is really helpful. And it helps you from kind of fruitlessly trying to change people's minds and kind of convince people they're mistaken about something. You know, every year I've been able to step back further and kind of become more objective about how the world works, but it's not always easy to stay on the it's not about you path. Um, we all have times when we think that path feels impossible, and I think we are collectively in one of those times right now. I really think we are facing an, an existential threat to our civic life as we know it, to our American constitutional democracy as we know it. Um, we're on, under a daily siege of confusing misinformation. Um, we're made to turn on each other. It feels rudderless. It feels disempowering. It feels impossible to hear the signal for the noise. But it's not productive, I don't think, to turn a deaf ear to each other uh, more than anything else, I think, empathic, dispassionate listening, coupled with constructive action, um, will help us navigate this dark time. And I think it will help us generate our own light. And in doing that, I think we'll be able to deliver to each other, to ourselves, our own salvation.
You're listening to a recording of Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event on KTOO News Juno. These stories were recorded November 14th, 2017 at Northern Light United Church. The theme for the evening was If Only I'd Listened. Curious? Visit mudrooms.org. Our next one is Guy Archibald. Guy Archibald is a mountain boy originally from Colorado. He thinks life is one big experiment. You don't know until you give it a try. So try everything. So I used to work at a mine way out in the desert of southeastern Utah. Beautiful country. Red slip rock, canyons, sage, pinyon pines. And we'd work a schedule of 10 days working and then four days off. But there really wasn't anything to do on your four days off. The nearest anything was a one-building town 81 miles away called Fry Canyon. But from the mine camp off on the horizon, I could see this large ridge that stuck up. It looked like a clenched fist. And I knew that Lake Powell was just on the other side of that ridge. So I made up my mind, such as it was, that I was going to hike there sometime. Now, to go back a little, for many years, I was a member of a mountain search and rescue team. And they drill into your head the two rules of going into the wilderness. First of all, you tell somebody where you're going and when you're going to come back. And second of all, you bring some essentials in case you end up out there longer than you planned. And we had to drill that into a lot of other people's heads. So one day, I set off across the desert towards my clenched fist. No matches, no food, no water, and I hadn't told a soul. (laughs) So I Walking across basically this big plateau, beautiful desert, I go a few miles, and I come across this big chasm in front of me, this huge crevasse in the earth, hundreds of feet deep, 100 feet wide or so. And right where I intersected it, there was a ledge down below, about 15-foot drop below, a big ledge with some pinions growing on it and yuccas and greasewood, and I couldn't see over the edge. Looked like if I could get down, I could climb out the other side. Continue on my way. So I walked up the canyon about a mile, and I'm looking and looking. Nope, no way down. I come back to the same spot, and no, I still can't see over the edge. So I walk down the canyon about a mile, looking and looking. Nope, can't find a way down. So I came back to that spot, and I decided I'll just jump down there look over the edge. So I did. Jumped down there, landed in the soft sand. I walked over to the edge and I looked down. Nope. (laughs) And then I looked behind me. Uh Uh-oh. Now I know what a spider feels like in a bathtub. (laughs) 
in the parlance of the desert, it's called being potholed. So now I get to entertain myself by cycling through the five stages of grief here. <laughs> so first there's denial. I'm not stuck. I'm going to get out of here. So I'd get back as far as I could, and I would run, and I would leap, and I'd throw myself against the rock, and I'd claw and scramble and scratch like a cat being suspended over water. And every time, I'd slide down and land in a heap, a little bit softer piece of meat every time. And I did this over and over again. And then there was anger. Man. And then there's bargaining. Please, God. Oh, Lord, I promise I'll be a good, oh, maybe a better person if you just get me out. And then there's depression. Let's see what's going to get me first. Dehydration, starvation, exposure. And then, of course, acceptance. Someday, somebody's going to come along this lonely spot, and they're going to look down there, and here's a skeleton with some tattered remains of clothing leaning up against the rock. <laughs> and I cycled through this for the next seven, eight hours, spending a little more time on one or the other. Became very good at them all. Obviously, I got off the ledge. And the way I did it was there was a little pinion pine about 10 feet tall next to the rock, and I climbed up in the top of that thing, and I'd start swinging it back and forth and back and forth, and at the right moment, I'd throw myself out of the tree and onto the rock, and I'd scramble and scratch, and I'd come down, and I'd land in a big wad in between the tree and the rock, and I did this over and over again, fueled by just increasing desperation. Finally, finally, I got just enough of a toehold where I could scramble up. I got just enough friction where I could take that one step necessary to climb off of this ledge and get out of this whole pothole. Sometimes listening is not enough. And as I'm dragging my now tenderized body back across the desert, it dawns on me that if we as humans actually listened to people, if we actually learned from others' experience and did not have to repeat the same mistakes, we would have colonized the universe by now. <laughs> but if that collective we is represented by me, <laughs> the universe is a very lucky place. Jonathan Smith has been a high school science teacher at Juno Douglas High School for the past 24 years. I know some of you were his students because you flinched when I said his name. <laughs> He's not allowed to do any flaming experiments in here. He came to Juno quite accidentally, as will become clear tonight. This is his third time up to bat at Medrooms, and he's hoping to at least make it to first base with you, <laughs> metaphorically speaking.
the year is 1992, and I had just uh, completed my first year of teaching out in Holy Cross, Alaska on the Yukon River, and I thought that I would never teach again. It was a very difficult experience. So I came out of Holy Cross, I had a pocket full of money for a young guy, and I bought myself a motorcycle. Uh, I was up in Fairbanks, and a friend of mine, a guy named Chuck, uh, said he wanted to go on a trip with me. So I had planned a trip all the way down to Mexico, and he said he would go as far as the exotic lands of Juneau, which I had never been to. And so uh, we, we set out from Fairbanks and, and came down here uh, to Juneau. And uh, it was right around the 4th of July, and I met up with some friends that I knew from Fairbanks, and uh, one of the, the, this friends, a woman named uh, Kelda Denton, her sister lives over there on 10th Street, and they were having their 4th of July party, uh, which I was invited to. And I remember I know nothing about Juneau. I did my first time here, and I was just kind of into it. I, I kind of liked the place. But uh, I was young and restless and trying to figure out who I was, and I was on this motorcycle trip. But anyway, so we're having this 4th of July party, and it's right over there near Goldstream, right, right over here. And I'm looking over there at Goldstream, and there's people going by in the sluice. And uh, this is 1992, and they used to still do this stupid thing. They, they would get on different, uh, you know, rubber rafts or whatnot, get up in Cope Park, and then just go, you know, come down to the sluice and then head down into the, uh, into the ocean down there. And as a 23-year-old guy, I'm looking at that going, hey, that looks fun. And uh, both my friend Hallie and uh, Kelda and their parents said, no, you don't want to do that. That water is really cold. And by the way, you have a ferry to catch in an hour. And I said, yo, no, that's not important. I want to go in the sluice. So, but, and then they said, but you don't have anything to go down with. And I said, it doesn't matter. I want to go in the sluice. So I went up to Cope Park, and I stuck out my finger like this. And I waited, and within a short period of time, a young Coast Guard guy, a big muscly dude, uh, came up with this really big round inner tube. What it was actually was the tube from a survival raft, but it didn't have any of the visqueen in it. It was just the tube. And he was out in that little pond there, that little holding pond before the, the waterfall, if you can call it a waterfall, and he was trying to hold the thing together in the shape of a canoe so he would sit on top of it and hold it together. And he was having a really hard time, and I know he damn well saw me with my finger out like this, and he kept on looking away from me. But after a while, he realized that he wasn't able to hold the thing together by himself because it was too wide. And so reluctantly, he motioned me over, and he said, okay, you get on the back and just hold it together and don't do anything. I said, okay, so I'm on the back of the thing, I'm holding the thing together, and he's on the front, and we're, you know, kind of paddling a little bit forward, and that thing that they call a waterfall is just an eight-foot sheer drop off of cement into, you know, about two inches of water, and so we come flying off of that thing, and of course, the rubber raft just immediately opened up into a big circular, and I don't know how it happened, but I ended up holding on to it, but now I'm being dragged backwards on the back of this thing trying not to undo this guy's pleasant experience up at the front because he made it very clear that he didn't want to hear from me. Anyway, so we're, I'm going backwards down this thing, and we're going pretty fast. That water was moving pretty darn fast. And I'm thinking, okay, I can do this. Although I knew that there were rocks at the end, and that was the big problem. I had been warned about the rocks at the end. So a couple of seconds go by, and then another problem started happening. My pants started inching down. But... I knew that I couldn't pull up my pants and hold on to the tube at the same time, and I needed the tube to save me from the rocks. So, yeah, eventually the pants and the underwear um, <laughs> made it around my ankles. And that's when I discovered those really cool bridges that go over <laughs> Gold Creek. 
And it was 4th of July and everybody had cameras. Um, for the men in the audience, yeah, the water was really, really cold. Anyway, we got down to the end, and I'm just, you know, I'm just trying to survive. We got down to the end, the, the rubber raft hit a bunch of the rocks, and I just kind of got thrown up onto the, um, to, onto the side, into the grass, pulled my pants up, ran back to my friend's house, and she goes, you got a half an hour to get to the ferry. I got on my motorcycle, I was freezing. And I made it out to the ferry, and, uh, and I had I'd already fallen in love with Southeast. I fell in love with the ferry, and I thought, you know, I have just exposed myself to all of Juneau. <laughs> and I have come to realize that, yeah, I want to live there someday. Our final speaker tonight is our own Tom Cosgrove. Tom Cosgrove considers himself a storyteller and believes we all have stories to share, which is why being on the Mudroom Storyboard and helping speakers move from idea to delivery is so damn rewarding. Tom and his wife Mila have just become empty nesters and have discovered it's harder than they imagined. Please welcome Tom to the stage. Beautiful. Thank you, Pat. Wow, what a great crowd. Vacuum cleaners. They've fascinated me since I've been a child. To me, they were these monstrous, magical beasts that turned chaos into order. And back in the day, vacuums were huge. They were made in the US of A back when we manufactured for the long term. There was nothing light and dainty about these things. My family? owned a Kirby, and it was stout. The only plastic on it was ornamental. Mostly it was rubber and steel. When I was real little, that machine scared the hell out of me. But over time, I got to just, uh, I was fascinated by its sheer power. That thing could suck the polish off a floor. I saw once, it accidentally consumed my sister's socks and underwear. <laughs> and it was loud. It would start up with this deep bass rumble, and when that motor got on step, it sounded like the whine of a jet engine. And it had a smell. It had a smell that was a combination of dust, burning rubber, and electricity. And it wasn't really a disgusting smell. It was more distinctive in a kind of industrial kind of way. When I married, I married into a filter queen. A filter queen is a high-end vacuum cleaner sold through exclusive dealers. And we still have this vacuum. It's at our cabin. But in town, that filter queen was dethroned by a much younger, slimmer, see-through model. A Dyson Absolute. <laughs> My wife, Mila, in a moment of Costco exuberance, <laughs> purchased this Dyson, which is the pinnacle of vacuum cleaner design. It was the first vacuum cleaner with a clear dust collector. Now that Kirby, all the dust and stuff went into a zippered cloth bag. 
That filter queen takes mechanical knowledge to empty. But that Dyson, you can see exactly when it's full, and it empties with a button push and a click. And it's fun to use. So I have vacuumed more than I usually do. <laughs> Who knew it could lead to no good? <laughs> Sometimes I get these intuitive flashes. It's not a voice. It's more of a hunch. It's a feeling that something is just not right. And when one of those pop up, my other five senses invariably start trash talking. Don't listen to that crap. It's black magic. <laughs> and it's not always right. And it's not always right. That's the thing. It's just, it's sometimes it's just not what I think it is. On this particular day, earlier in the day, I had started a fire in the wood stove. And I had just gotten around to vacuuming up all the wood dust and stuff. Now, when I start a fire in the wood stove, I leave the door open a crack to give it a little extra uh, air. But I had forgotten to latch the door. And in the meantime, that fire had become mature. I was dusting off the top of the wood stove with the Dyson easy-to-use wand when I got an intuitive hit, I could feel the hair on the back of my neck. I hesitated, but just for a moment, before my senses convinced me it was a false alarm. I took that easy-to-use wand, and I finished at the top of the wood stove, and I ran it along the shelf right outside the door and then onto the hearth. And when I turned to put that easy-to-use wand back onto the main unit, I saw in that clear dust collector a tornado of sparks and fire. <laughs> I had sucked in a live coal and it had ignited the dust. <laughs> Time slowed down. <laughs> it was beautiful. <laughs> it was like thousands of stars in a galaxy just whipping around a black hole. I just stood there, mesmerized and frightened. It looked like the fire was self-contained, but I had no idea what would happen when I cut the power. And then time snapped back. I pulled the cord out of the wall, and that galaxy of stars collapsed into a clump that immediately sprouted flames. I fumbled with the button on the easy-to-clean Dyson. I had hoped for a smooth James Bond move, but I looked more like Barney Fife. I finally hit that button, yanked that clear dust collector off the vacuum, threw open the front door, and ran for the driveway. I hit the lever that popped open the bottom of the container, and that burning mass of dust and dirt hit the wet pavement and hissed. 
When I got back to the house, there was virtually no smoke. The smoke alarms hadn't even gone off, and they go off when we make popcorn. <laughs> but the smell, oh my goodness. It's kind of smelled like that old Kirby. <laughs> but with the additional aroma of burning hair. I opened up all the windows and started up the fans, and I went back out to the driveway to see if I could salvage that clear dust collector. Because if I could save that, I might not have to explain any of this. <laughs> but that container had a hole, a small hole, about the size of a dime where one of those coals had melted through the plastic. So I had to come clean. Mila was mildly amused and not at all surprised. <laughs> and she immediately ordered a spare clear dust collector. But in the meantime, we still needed a vacuum cleaner. So I patched that small hole on the clear dust collector with a piece of hot pink duct tape, a, a leftover from one of the kids' art projects. We fired up that Dyson and it worked beautifully. We received that replacement and never installed it. <laughs> and to this day, that Dyson Absolutes clear dust collector sports a pink badge of courage. <laughs> Thank you. You're listening to KTOO News Juno 104.3 FM. The stories you just heard were recorded live on November 14th, 2017. The theme for the evening was If Only I'd Listened. To tell your story or to find out about the next live event, visit mudrooms.org. Audio production by Rich Moniak. Additional help from Melissa Griffiths, Tom Cosgrove, Pat Roach, Steve Sewing, and Sarah Hannon. Music by the Wednesday Night Old Time Jammers. I'm Alita Buss. Have a good night. Woo!